0: Let us open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Once you find your place there, hold it. And let's turn to Matthew chapter 16 as well. Matthew 16. Since we just sang a song, an appropriate one, a good one, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremias, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Amen and amen. The Roman Catholics come along and find this passage of Scripture and assume in it that in verse 18, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that Jesus is referring to the meaning of the Greek word Peter or Petra for rock, and that Jesus was going to build his church on Peter. And then they get to the 19th verse, And they assume that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter only. Though, if you were to read the rest of the gospel accounts, Matthew 18, John chapter 20, you would find that all the apostles were given keys and the power of binding and loosing in the New Testament church. But back to verse 18, thou art Peter and upon this rock. The rock is Christ Jesus. And that had been declared by Peter when Peter said, thou art the Christ the Son of the living God. That Jesus of Nazareth is professed and declared to be the Son of God is the rock on which the church is built. The eunuch asked Philip in the desert in Acts chapter 8, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip responded, If thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the gospel. That's the rock on which the church is built. That Jesus Christ is God's Son and the Messiah and Savior of His people. It's not Peter. Peter had no primacy or supremacy among the other apostles. Paul rebuking him in Galatians 2.11 and many other things that could be said to show that he did not have that place that the Catholic Church gives him can be Easily established. Verse 17. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 11, I thank thee, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father... For it seemed good in thy sight. And no man knoweth the Son but the Father, and no man knoweth the Father but the Son, and he to whomsoever he will reveal him. Right here you have a cross reference for that Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 27, with the fact that no one can sincerely. And honestly and obediently know that Jesus of Nazareth is God's Son without it being revealed to Him from heaven. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee. Parents can't do it. Soul winners can't do it. Preachers can't do it. Priests can't do it. Popes can't do it. There is no evangelistic method nor evangelistic team nor is there any preacher of the gospel that can reveal the identity of Jesus Christ but by the grace and power of God. It is not by flesh and blood it is by God revealing it. And so we see the we see the power of God's revelation of truth in verse 17. We see Jesus Christ, the rock on which the church is built in verse 18 and verse 19. We see the role that God gave Peter to open the gospel to the Jews on the day of Pentecost, to open the gospel to the Gentiles in the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and to open up the proceedings in the council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. This is Peter. Flesh and blood hath not revealed unto thee but my father which is in heaven. Do you know that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of God today? Do you know that he sits on the throne of heaven, the throne of his father David? That he's coming again to take us unto himself? That he is the high king of heaven and in him there is and in other than him there is no other salvation or redemption? But he has by himself purged us from our sins. And by His obedience, we have been made righteous. It's by the revelation of God. Thank you, Lord. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. We sang that song and I couldn't help but comment on that passage in Matthew 16 since we are pretty much going to leave Peter and go into the text that we have before us. First Peter chapter 1. Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Let's take the first verse. Peter. We have spent some time already this morning dealing with Peter. Unlike Hebrews, where Paul is not identified for political reasons to enhance its reception by a Jewish audience, This epistle is blessed by Peter's name being on the front end of it for that same audience. For them to know that the prince of the apostles, the chosen one of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem, was confirming their gospel that they had heard from Paul. I've told you about his name. I've told you about his record in the New Testament. Let's go to the next words. An apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostles were very special men chosen by Jesus Christ and enabled for great kingdom work. They are listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4 as the highest office the church ever had. The last apostle was Paul. There has not been an apostle since Paul. To be an apostle, you had to have seen the the, with, with your own eyes the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus appeared to Paul as one born out of due season in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. No one has seen him since. There are no apostles. When you hear about the Mormon church having 12 apostles, they are heretics. When you hear about the Pope being an apostle, the replacement for Peter, they are heretics. When you hear these charismatics running around with Benny Hinn and other apostles, they are heretics. And if you always want the simplest method to cut down a tree, cut down its taproot, and whenever they open their mouths and talk about being an apostle, they don't know what they're talking about. You can reject the rest of the stuff they have to say if the fundamental, if the fundamental, most simple fact they're claiming about themselves is that they have an apostle. You know, our city thinks it has an apostle. His name is Ron Carpenter. He's not an apostle. He's never seen the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's never done the works of an apostle. If he did the works of an apostle, we wouldn't need Greenville Memorial Hospital. You know, I wonder why they, Benny Hinn, when he comes to town, uses the Bilo Center instead of Greenville Hospital. Is that a simple point to you? He can't heal. It's a delusion. It's a satanic delusion. Peter could heal. The Apostle Paul could heal with handkerchiefs and aprons that were sent out from him. Peter could heal with his shadow. Praise the Lord for the apostolic power given to Peter to take that fisherman from Galilee that when he opened his mouth, they knew he hadn't gone to school. It says that in the book of Acts, in the first couple of chapters, as soon as he started speaking, they knew that he was unlearned, but they also knew something else about him. That he had been with Jesus. So instead of worrying about your grammar, especially when you pray in this pulpit, worry about whether you've been with Jesus or not. That's what counts in this church. Have you been with Jesus? Thank you, Lord, for showing us that in the Word of God. We do believe in learning English grammar. We do love our English Bibles. But the more important thing is knowing the person of the Bible rather than the grammar of the Bible. Lord, teach us and show us yourself. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Bible is a book about the Lord Jesus Christ. Apostles were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus, as Peter explained in Acts chapter 1, when he told the 120 that were assembled there to look among themselves and find some others that were eyewitnesses and knew the full record of the gospel account of Jesus' life on earth that they could vote for, that they could pick by lot, Jesus could vote for to replace Judas Iscariot, and so that took place in Acts chapter 1. Peter had great gifts of an apostle. Look what happened to Ananias and Sapphira when they tried to lie to uh, Peter in Acts chapter 5, as I mentioned earlier. And and Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, was raised from the dead by this man. Why did Peter state his office here? To magnify his authority from Christ over other teachers. There were teachers coming out of Jerusalem. Jerusalem that were a constant problem to Paul and the other apostles. They triggered the council in Jerusalem because they had come north to Antioch of Syria, 300 miles away, Paul's home church, and were talking about having to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. Well, Paul didn't like that, so he made a trip down to Jerusalem, and there's where the council of Jerusalem was held in order to combat these teachers. They were Jewish legalists. Romans deals with them. Galatians deals with them. Other apostles, all of Galatians, much of Romans, and other epistles also have to deal with these false teachers. In the the Corinthian church, there were false teachers as well. And so in, in opening a letter or in opening an epistle to say the words, an apostle of Jesus Christ set him apart from these other false teachers that were not apostles. Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, always first in the list of 12 always first in the list of 3 praise his name and what an apostle he was when he got the call for the ministry i want you to see how long he hesitated holding your hand at first peter 1 turn to matthew 4 matthew 4 peter was bold peter was zealous how long did it take him to settle up his business affairs and think about becoming an apostle we want to be like him We have enough hotheads in here to be sort of like Peter. We just don't want to fail very often. And he didn't fail very often. They're written down in the Bible to give us comfort and encouragement. The Bible tells us that the things that were written aforetime were written for us and for our learning, that through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And you know, there's hope for sinners. And there's hope for wild men. When uh, you read about Peter at Matthew chapter four, verse 18 and Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishers and he saith unto them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. Now, how long did they take to wrap up their affairs? They just straightway. They just dropped their nets and went and followed him. That left a boat, that left nets, that left other accessories necessary for fishing in the Sea of Galilee, but it didn't matter. The Lord Jesus Christ had called, and there goes Peter. Peter's apostolic role was very great from Acts 1, leading the apostles to pick the replacement for Judas, to Acts 10. Acts 10. When he preached to the household of Cornelius, which was very contrary to Jewish tradition and practice at that time, he was called in the carpet forward in Acts chapter 11. He explained what happened and how the Holy Ghost blessed his efforts, and they approved of him there, and they approved of his speech in Acts chapter 15, that God had used him to open the door of the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter did not have any supremacy, and I don't think with this congregation I have to spend much time on that. Instead of... Ending his life in Rome, as Catholics believe, he ended his life in Babylon. And that's what it says in the Bible. We have a choice. Do they outnumber us? Do the Catholics outnumber us? 1.1 billion claim to be Catholics on earth, and here we are. And we're going to say they don't know what they're talking about, and we do. On the authority of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, that Peter was in Babylon. And that Paul was the apostle for the Romans and for the Gentiles. Peter wasn't an apostle for the Gentiles, so how could he have been very effective in Rome? In in 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 1, he compares himself to ordinary elders. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder. Why didn't he say, the elders which are among you I exhort, because I am the Pope. He didn't... But there they go. There they go. There they go. Why are these things in the Bible? In order to to help us. Why does the Bible tell us that Peter had a wife and his mother-in-law lived with him? Why does Paul repeat that in 1 Corinthians 9 so that we would not be led astray with the doctrine of celibacy taught by the Roman Catholic Church? The church's foundation is made up of the apostles and prophets of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of them combined and put together. That's the highest office, apostle, that's the second highest office, prophets. Apostles and prophets make up the foundation of the New Testament church. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Not Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers. Strangers. These strangers were the dispersed Jews by the Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans that were living outside the nation of Israel. And this particular group of strangers are identified by five Roman provinces, small little areas within central and western Turkey today to the strangers scattered. There weren't very many, none of them were congregated together. They were scattered throughout these regions so that when you went into a city, you would find a synagogue where there were a few Jews worshiping. The majority of the populace would be Gentiles. Within the synagogue, there would be Jews and Gentile proselytes. But they were just scattered remnant. They were third-class citizens. And to them, the apostle writes, In order to confirm them in the gospel taught by Paul, in order to encourage them to godliness, to gird up their faith in the face of suffering, and to be a good example to the Gentiles around them that the gospel would not be blasphemed. To the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In Acts chapter 2 and verses 5 through 10. Verse 9 in particular, where the 15 different national groups, nationalities, and groups of Jews visiting in Jerusalem are mentioned, Pontus, Cappadocia, and Asia are mentioned there. So they would have had some from the very beginning that knew about Peter. And that would have been converted in the day of Pentecost, baptized, and went back home to those particular three places. Galatia, the churches of Galatia, are written to by Paul in the epistle of the Galatians. And he said in 1 Corinthians 16, as I have given commandment to the churches of Galatia, so I give a commandment to you about giving on the Lord's day of the week. So that's Galatia. Bithynia, when Paul was traveling west in Turkey, he is said to go north into Bithynia, and the Bible says the Holy Spirit forbid him. Follow, listen, this is as far as I'm going to go. Do you know that we could spend a service on Pontus? And I could tell you about the population, the geography. I could tell you about the language spoken there and the primary businesses there and the trade they had and who their trading partners were and what religions and temples were built there and what excavations have been done. Oh. Whatever the Bible says about Pontus is what we want to know. There were people from Pontus, devout men, on the day of Pentecost that heard Peter preach Christ, and they believed. And they went back, and so there were churches and Jewish believers in these places. But now Bithynia. What can we learn about Bithynia? Now, Paul done a great work in Galatia. There were churches in Galatia where the Jewish legalists were waging battle. What is Galatians all about from beginning to end? The epistle to the Galatians, six chapters long, is about one theme. Paul refuting Jewish legalism. So we understand why that one's here. Peter's going to confirm Paul's gospel as being the truth. But what about Bithynia? I love reading in Acts chapter 16, as you get up to verse 9, where the apostle Paul tried to go into Bithynia, but the Lord wouldn't let him. And you say to yourself, Well, what about God's elect in Bithynia? God took care of him, didn't he? Because we have 1 Peter chapter 1 right here. To the strangers scattered throughout Bithynia. God got the gospel there on a later trip by Paul or by some other preacher of the gospel. Praise his glorious name. Where there is an elect eunuch riding alone through the desert God will have a Philip for him. No one has ever sought the face of God and the truth of God and was left desolate in the earth. If you seek me with your whole heart, Jeremiah 29 verse 13, you shall find me. And those elect people, when God has a people, he told Paul, you stay in Corinth because in this city I have much people. He didn't say you got to preach to everyone, you got to convert everyone. He said, I have much people in this city. He had people in Bithynia and he found them and Peter here is writing to them. Even though in Acts chapter 16 it wasn't yet time for Paul to preach to them. Do you trust the Lord? Do you trust the Lord's timing? There are people in this church that were converted later in life. And there's a tendency to be disappointed. There's a tendency to almost be frustrated with the Lord as to why they weren't converted earlier. But God has His perfect timing. And God has had His timing for those in Bithynia. Yes. Oh, okay. Verse 2. You want a verse to memorize? Oh. Does anybody in here like Ephesians 1, 3 through 14? Oh, Ephesians 1, 3-14, but how many of you can memorize that? That's 12 verses long. How about one capsulized statement from Peter? I'm not trying to make 1 Peter 1, 2 better than Ephesians 1, 3-14. I like the explan- explanation in that longer passage, but if you want a summary statement, it's right here. Elect! These strangers, these Jews, scattered and dispersed, Third class citizens sitting way out there in the middle of Turkey, far from Israel, way across the Mediterranean Sea. Gentiles making up the majority of their churches. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Amen. Elect. I have tried this morning to share with you how I hope that you will read the Bible that when you read a verse like this you will stop after one word. You will read elect and you will think that the word about the word elect and what it means. It means God chose. God made a choice. God made a choice and it should cause you to rejoice and to praise God. Men desire to be chosen for a promotion. Chosen for a job. Chosen for a bid on a job. Chosen for a date. Chosen in the lottery. (laughs) No one in here should be playing that foolish loser's game. Chosen for some office in a business or for some office in the church. But this is a choice To eternal life. Elect. It's going to tell us what they were chosen to. The obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. You should give God the glory. And be thankful for this. As the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. Brethren beloved of the Lord. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. We are bound to give thanks. So when we land on this word, we could spend the entirety of this sermon and the entirety of the next sermon preaching through the doctrine of election. But since I've done that before, I'm not going to do that. But I want you to be, I want to teach you to slow down in your reading and to look at that word and to realize election is taught in the Bible. These Jews that thought they were the children of God needed God's election as much as us, us Gentiles to be the children of God. And what should be the effect from hearing about election? We are bound to give thanks always to God. Who do we give thanks to? God made the election. We didn't. How often should we give thanks to God for election? Alway. What is the sense of duty and obligation upon us? We are bound to it. This is, this is an eternal destiny transforming choice by God. We are bound to give thanks always. Lord, we thank You. We bless You. We praise You. Forgive the pitiful words that we choose to thank Thee for choosing us. There was nothing in us to cause You to choose us. Because it seemed good in Thy sight. We bless and we praise You. We are bound to it. We believe every word of God and we feel upon our souls the obligation to thank thee for it. We look at this one word and it delights our souls, yet we cannot understand it because there is nothing in us for you to choose. Elect. Elect. It is a shame so few Christians are taught about the doctrine of God's election to eternal life. Most Christians are afraid of the idea. They want the choice in their hands. Because they don't have a clue about what I've taught you the last couple of weeks, and that is total depravity. If total depravity is fully understood, without election, not a single soul would be saved. The modern missions movement must be greatly altered or scrapped in light of election. God has chosen who's going to be saved, and not a single one of them will be lost. Their dedication that is most Christians around us to decisional salvation and once saved, always saved is a terrible two-edged sword of heresy. That eternal life depends on their little choice for salvation and as soon as you make that little choice then we're going to teach you once saved, always saved. That leads to living any particular, any kind of way that you want. Because you're on your way to heaven, because you know the date of some choice you made. We believe in the electing grace of God, where God chose men to eternal life. But the only way we can know about it is living a holy life that is pleasing to Him. That God gets all the glory, we have a tremendous motive upon us to live right. They take, steal all the glory from God because God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost did as much for those in hell as He did for those in heaven. And then once saved, always saved. There's no reason to live for the Lord. That's heresy. That is not what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible teaches. Elect. 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 Many think election isn't taught at all in the Bible, for they only know John 3.16. They've never never read past John 3.16. They don't know that election is taught throughout the Bible. They've hardly ever read the Bible or gotten past the Romans' road. They don't know that God chose Israel out of all nations. How can you read the Old Testament without knowing that out of the whole population of the earth, God chose one nation, and do you know which nation He chose for its size? Israel, He says in Deuteronomy 7.7, Israel was the smallest of all nations. How big was it when it went down, when, when the nation moved down into Egypt? Four numbers will work, because the Bible uses four different numbers, depending on which context you're reading. Let's use the biggest number, 75. The Church of God, 75 souls, goes down into Egypt. Why don't they read the Old Testament? What did God ever do for the Philistines except send David? Honestly, what did God do for the Egyptians? except send flies, the finger of God, and drown them in the Red Sea. Do you know what the Bible says? You think that I'm exaggerating the case? God said in Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, of all nations of the earth, I have known only you. I'm getting ahead of myself because that helps us understand the word foreknowledge. When God said of all the nations of the earth, I've known only you, does that mean he didn't have knowledge of any of the rest of the nations on earth? Or does the word know mean something more than just bare knowledge? Right. It means to have an affectionate, approving, loving relationship with them. Only you have I known of all nations on the earth. Psalm 147 verses 19 and 20 says that no other nation did God reveal his scriptures to but the nation of Israel. Right. Why can't they see that when they look at the Bible? You know, all you have to do is read the Old Testament. You'd believe in election before you ever got to the New Testament to read the words there. Mm-hmm. God chose Abraham. God chose Israel. God chose David. you know what David said about how he became king? God didn't like Saul. So God looked at the nation of Israel, had 12 tribes. God looked at 12 tribes and he said, I like Judah. 11 tribes don't make the cut. God looked at Judah, saw all these families. Judah was the largest tribe, all these different families. And David said, God liked the family of Jesse. Well, Jesse's picked. All the others disappear. All the other families of Judas, David said this. Now, Jesse had eight sons. The competition's still pretty tough. Out of all his sons, God liked me. I haven't looked it up to confirm this, but God liking someone is not a common expression in the Bible. But it's used for David. Now, how can you read the Old Testament and see that and, and know that God... And not think that God elects. All the boundaries of the earth were determined by the boundaries of Israel according to God. What he had chosen to be their property. How many nations lived in Canaan before it was given to Israel? Seven nations. Uprooted and annihilated and replaced with the Israelites. Well, it's because they were obedient. You want to tell me what? Israel was obedient. They had greater privileges than any nation on earth and they were a stiff-necked and rebellious people that continually wandered back to idolatry. They were God's chosen people is what made the difference. I'm not going to start turning you to all the references that I've, I've, I've got a little list here of the references in the New Testament that teach election. We don't have time for that. But do you know that it's taught? That it's taught in Matthew? If God doesn't shorten... The destruction of Jerusalem, not even the elect would be saved. But for the elect's sake, he will shorten the destruction of Jerusalem. (laughs) And it just keeps going. Where is it in Revelation? Well, the names in the book of life were written in it before the foundation of the world. Is that good enough? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Many don't have the eyes to see that God's election in other areas of life is universally present. Can't they see God's election everywhere they look? For, forget even reading the Bible. Can't you just look around? God has made countless choices that drastically affect your life and their lives. God's choices determine your life on this planet. God's choice of your parents... Your nation to be born into. The generation of time from Adam to this date, 6,000 years, God chose the generation you were born in. Haven't you thought about that? Haven't they thought about that? How about your intelligence, your looks, your health? Your coordination, your strength, your neighbors, your schools, your opportunities, your height, your metabolism, your jobs, your bosses that you've had, the investment returns, your spouse, your children, the economy that you live in, crime around you, natural disasters, etc., 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 etc. God has made choices in all those matters that drastically affect your life and turn it upside down. Elect. But the greatest choice of all is election to eternal life. Praise His name. Election here is God's choice to eternal life, for it is Jesus Christ's obedience and blood that are the object of that election. To write these Jews who thought they were already elect as God's children by their first birth, this is a wonderful reminder to them that they were dependent upon the grace of God as much as Gentiles. you want me to show you that somewhere else? Always hold your hand at 1 Peter 1. But look at at Acts chapter 15. The apostle Peter is explaining to the council of Jerusalem that we should not require the law from these converted Gentiles. Now therefore, why tempt ye God? Listen to Peter. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? This is Acts 15.10. But we believe... Acts fifteen eleven. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. Peter addressing Jews, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as the Gentiles. He doesn't say the Gentiles will be saved like us Jews are saved. He says by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to be saved like they were. That's just a powerful statement, agrees with what we're doing right here, because of Peter, a Jew, writing to Jews, elect. More could be said. You know how much more could be said? Do you know how much we could preach about election? Do you know that God has already preempted your question? Or for you to ask, how do I know that I'm God's elect? Anyone listening to this sermon and it's crossing your mind, how do I know that I'm one of God's elect? God knew you were going to ask that question. It is a good question. It's a question that you better get answered. The answer to it is found in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 11 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. If you didn't catch it, that is 2 Peter 1, 5 through 5-11, and 1 Thessalonians 1, 2-4. In those places, you are given the evidence of election. And if you bring that evidence to bear in your life, then you can make your calling and election sure. And if you do those things, you will never fall. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. He preempted the question, and He answered it for us. Amen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here we go. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Some come along that have never heard about election. They don't like election. It scares them. They want the choice of eternal life in their own hands. They read verses in the Bible like, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so they believe, they think, they assume, they presume that eternal life is dependent upon their choice. Therefore, it can't be God's choice. If God is making a choice and He's making a choice of those that he saw would make a choice for him, and so they end up with what is called conditional election, that the men that fulfilled the condition are the ones that are elected. Is it possible for us to elect President Barack Obama who's presently sitting in the office of President of the United States of America, or did he already get there? How in the world can God elect someone who elected him? How does that work? Someone has to get this thing started. And that's why we start with total depravity. And that's why we've been teaching on that recently, though I did not plan this coordinated effort between total depravity and the word election coming up here in First 1 Peter 1-2. I'm not smart enough for that, but there's a God in heaven who directs all of us who is smart enough for that. Get one thing perfectly clear right now. When it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it is not because God looked ahead, God looked down, and God saw those that were seeking Him, and those that understood they were on their way to hell, unless they invited Him into their hearts, and so He elected them. That is the common Arminian explanation of election, if they've even thought about election. If an Arminian who believes that a person is saved by their own decision because God the Father loved them as He loved everyone in the world and Jesus Christ died for their sins just like He died for the sins of all men and the Holy Spirit woos all men equally to invite Jesus into their hearts, what makes the difference? Their choice. That's what they believe. So when they find the word election, this is God looking down to see who would invite Jesus into their heart and therefore electing them making a choice these are the ones that I'll save but now the bible tells us that Jesus looked that God looked down from heaven and we just covered that by god's providential timing of our sermons it is found in psalm 14 psalm 53 and romans chapter 3 god looked down upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek god and how many did he find none There is none righteous, there is none good, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. No, not one. So how many would be saved if it wasn't for election? No, not one. It cannot be that. So this word foreknowledge has to mean something else than God looking ahead and knowing who would do this or that based on His influences toward them. It's got to be different than that because the Bible rules out God looking down and seeing any. The Bible tells us, in addition to that point, "...I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion." Now there are four wills in that sentence I just read to you. That is quoted from Moses by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9 and verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now where is the sinner's will involved in that sentence? You say it sounds cut out. Well, it's cut out this thoroughly. Here's the next verse. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. We are talking about God's grace and God's mercy in the salvation of our souls in this verse because it is dealing with the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Since we are dealing with the mercy and compassion and grace of God, it is by the will of God only. When we go to Ephesians chapter 1, it is according to the praise of the glory of His grace and of His will that we were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began. And so on two points, First of all, God did look down, and there were none that understood or that were seeking Him. No, not one. Second, salvation is entirely dependent upon the will of God, not the will of the sinner. Whenever we exercise our will, it is a result of God having first exercised His will in us. Because it says this in Philippians two twelve and 13, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. When you get around to willing and making a choice to follow Jesus, it is too late for that to save you. You've already been saved. It's too late for that to get you elected. You've already been elected. Not only have you been elected, but because you were elected, God has made a change inside of you so that you will will and do of His good pleasure. Okay. Now, along comes the Calvinist. More verses could be raised, but that's sufficient. To know that when it says elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, it's not God the Father looking down and choosing those who have already chosen Him. No, this is God's choice, and our choice isn't in it. And when you make a choice for God, it's way too late because God's already made His choice for you. Or you wouldn't make a choice for God because guess what? With Adam and Eve, our first parents, we've all made our choice against God. This is the doctrine of God's sovereign grace and this is the doctrine that makes us bound to give thanks always the way to God because if He had left us to our choice we would never have chosen Him. It wouldn't matter if an evangelist came back from hell itself or from the grave or from heaven to preach according to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 16 it wouldn't matter if someone came back from the dead they wouldn't choose Jesus. God has to choose us first. Tulip is how men summarize the doctrines of Calvinism. Tulip, T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, and we agree with the Calvinists on that point. That election is unconditional, meaning that God chooses men regardless of them doing any good. L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. Okay, foreknowledge. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God knows everything. God knows everything in advance. So there is a sense in which God has foreknowledge of everything because God knows everything and he knows everything in advance. But the word foreknowledge isn't used that way in the Bible. And the word omniscience isn't in the Bible. By the word omniscience we mean all-knowing, all-science. God knows everything. But that word isn't in the Bible either. God does know all things from beginning to end. He knows the end from the beginning and it's no different to Him at all. But what does this word foreknowledge mean? The The word know in the Bible has a, has a different significance than just having prescience, science, knowledge, awareness, apprehension of a thing or a person. You know, when when we say, I know them, it can be, I know their name, I know their address, I know where he works. But when it says in the Bible, Adam knew his wife Eve, did that mean he knew her name and where she worked and her phone number? When it says Adam knew his wife Eve, was it something a little bit more intimate than that? Was there a result from Adam knowing his wife Eve? Was his name Cain? Now that's knowing. Of all the families of the earth, I've only known you. Hasn't he known all the families of the earth in the way of awareness and factual evidence about them? But he only knew one nation affectionately. In Psalm 1 and verse 6 where it says, The Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. Doesn't he also know the way of the wicked? In the sense of being aware of all that they're doing and aware of their persons. But the word know is being used in the way of approval and affection and love. Follow. In the great day of judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ all these references will be in the outline and it will be posted in the next 24 hours by God's grace. In the great day of judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say to the wicked, depart from me, ye that work iniquity, I never knew you. I never knew you. I never knew you. Did he know about them? Did he know the number of hairs on their head? Did he know every single thing about them? Was he aware of every single circumstance and detail of their lives? He knew everything about them in that sense of the word, but as far as an affectionate relationship, he did not know them. I never knew you. So the word know has another significance in the Bible. Whether we're talking about Adam knowing Eve, or we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ saying, I never knew you, it means I did not have an affectionate, personal, intimate, loving relationship with you. I have no interest in you. They are horrible words. Do you know why you will never hear those words? Because of the first word of 1 Peter 1, 2. God has loved you with an everlasting love, which is why he elected you. And it's why it says elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God has loved the elect with an everlasting love. The knowledge is just not the awareness of their address and the number of hairs on their heads, but a personal interest in them to where he is not going to let all their sins and the sinfulness of our race and Adam's sin and his pure and perfect justice and holiness condemn them to hell. He is going to send a substitute for them, which is listed in this verse, and he is going to save them from all of that. Because of His love for them. He has embraced them in eternity before they knew Him. He has embraced them in eternity before they existed. Because they existed in His mind because God is able to call those things which be not as though they were. Those are Bible words. God can call those things that don't exist as if they existed because He's going to bring them into existence. And He wrote our names in the book of life. And He assigned us personally to the Lord Jesus Christ through the sanctification of the Spirit. That Jesus Christ would be assigned to us. We would be assigned to Him. We were engraved in the palms of His hands, the Bible says. Our names were written in the book of life. And Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world, verse 20 of this chapter, to come and die for them, but was manifest in these last times. He wasn't brought to light until He came into the world 2,000 years ago. But for the men that lived for 4,000 years that were God's elect, Jesus had already died for them. In this sense, we understand the word foreknowledge. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow. Where that word foreknow means, for those that he had a personal, previous relationship with, loving them, and an interest in their salvation... He predestinated them. If it meant that he was just aware of the facts about their life, then it would apply to all men, and it would not distinguish those that are saved at all. Romans 8.29 is not the only place where it is used in Romans. It's also used over in Romans chapter 11, where the terminology is this way. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. And if you read this passage, it's not him knowing about how obedient they were going to be. It's him knowing what great work he was going to be going to do in disobedient ones of them. Romans eight twenty nine, Romans eleven two are two places in Romans that use the word foreknow and foreknew. Help us define the word foreknowledge right here. God's everlasting love for his elect, which is taught in Jeremiah 31.3 and Ephesians 1.4, is in stark contrast to his never knowing the wicked in the day of judgment. I never knew you. Well, he knew all about them. He never knew them affectionately. He never knew them personally. He never had an interest in saving them. Which elsewhere is explained in the Bible as the hatred of God. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Listen to the words, please. Do I have a son in here that learned this when he was two years old? Psalm five five. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. That's Psalm five five. Let me say it again, the second clause. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Matthew chapter seven verse twenty three. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. I never knew you. Do you see how they're saying the very same thing? Workers of iniquity that are still viewed as workers of iniquity by God are hated by God. And Jesus Christ will profess that to them by saying, I never knew you, which means I hate you. I have no interest in you. And he will cast them into an eternal hell. This is what the Bible, and listen, every man that is over there in that hand deserves to go there, and we deserve to go there right along with them, because by nature we are all the children of wrath. But I'm going to tell you, there's one word that opens up this verse, and it's elect, and it's by God's election that he pulled us out of that number. It's by his choice that he pulled us out of that number. Now there's another way that the word foreknowledge can be understood as well that just backs up and confirms the one I gave you. It's a little bit different. It's not affection. It's not love. It's just that the word foreknowledge means the things that I've determined that are going to happen in the future and therefore I know them. Foreknowledge. Let me... Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If I promise to get you out on time on Wednesday night, will you let me not get you out on time on Sunday afternoon? Acts chapter 2. I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord for understanding this verse. By His grace only. Watch. Peter is explaining hope. It's Peter again. He may like the word. By the inspiration of the Lord. He's preaching on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2.23. Talking about these wicked men of Israel crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ. Him. Him. Him, Acts 2.23, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Notice, it says that there are two things that delivered Jesus Christ over to the hands of the Jews to crucify Him. God's determinate counsel and His foreknowledge. So God here is using the word foreknowledge in a way that involves His eternal counsel and plan on what's going to be done. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This foreknowledge of God delivers him. This foreknowledge of God just doesn't recognize what's going to happen to him, but it delivers him because it plans what's going to happen to him. Ye have taken in my wicked hands, have crucified and slain. Chapter four of Acts. Acts chapter four and verse twenty-eight. Same same event being under consideration, and the apostles are reading are, are speaking this in a prayer. Acts four twenty eight for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. When we de- there's another sense that foreknowledge is God knows what is coming because God's going to make happen what happens. Not that God looks down and sees sinners inviting Jesus into their heart and therefore He reacts to them. God, nobody would ever do that. The only ones that ever, the only ones that ever believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and profess and confess with their mouth are those that he has already saved and those he has already saved are those he chose to save before the foundation of the world. Look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 18. Acts 15 and 18. Our fathers in the faith understood these senses of the word foreknowledge that I am giving you and I am thankful to know that we are in a line of faithful Baptists that have understood these things. For centuries, all the way back from the apostles. Acts chapter 15 and verse 18. Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. Well, what's another another word for that sentence? Known unto God are all His works from the beginning of the world. So in the beginning of the world, God knew all His works. What would you call that? Foreknowledge. It's God's works. Are you with me on that? Do you, do, do you like that? Do you, can you get a little bit excited? Because it's not me. It's, uh, it's the Lord. And it's the Holy Spirit. I get excited at home. And if my wife's around, I'll chase her down if she's in the garden or the kitchen just to tell her. Look at how good the Lord is! First Peter 1 Peter 1.2 can be difficult when you're, when you're trying to present it to an Arminian. They want to focus on the word foreknowledge, but they've never done any study on the word foreknowledge. They don't even know what it means when it says in the Bible that God knew someone. Thank you, Lord. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Men were chosen by God. Sinners were chosen by God, including these strangers scattered throughout these five regions in central Turkey, according to the affectionate, everlasting love of Almighty God and His purpose to save a people according to His own works, which were known from the beginning of the world. Which includes... Verse twenty, where Jesus Christ was foreordained from the beginning that 's one of the works as well, and that foreordained and foreknowledge used in this sense, same thing, talking about god 's work known beforehand, purpose to bring to pass, resulting in election elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sometimes the the Trinity of the Godhead, the Father is shown to be doing something, the Son doing something or the Word doing something, or the spirit doing something. In the economy of our salvation, God is usually the one doing the choosing and the, and the loving. The, the, the son is usually the one doing the dying and the redeeming. And the Holy Spirit is usually the one doing the applying and the making holy. So we come to this next expression through sanctification of the spirit. Through sanctification of the spirit. Sanctification. Do not be intimidated by big words in the Bible. Only theologians want to intimidate you by big words in the Bible. I cannot speak for doctor's offices, hospitals, and nurses, when you, and pharmacists. When you start reading the words that they come up with and try to figure out what they're talking about, that is an impossible puzzle. Sorry. I, just, I don't want anybody to ever be scared by words here. See, if you're in a profession that has scary words, it's, help, it's part of your job security. You look at First of all, you look at a prescription that you can't read the handwriting because they never got through the first grade when it came to handwriting. And then they're writing something in words that you can't figure out, so guess what? I'll just go do it. Here, you get it from this man in the white coat, and you give it to this man in the white coat, and you go home and pop the white pills down your throat, and I'm not making fun of anyone. It's part of their job security. They have big fancy words that us little people don't know about. You know, we can't get past the four-letter word cold. They just go off and describe it in all these long terms. But I don't ever want you to feel that way when you're in the house of God. And I'm not making fun of any profession. I respect their professions, and I appreciate their extensive learning and study of the human body, anatomy, biology, microbiology, and everything else that they do in order to come up with the witty inventions that we have in our generation. I'm thankful that Ed's here this morning. He's bouncing around. If you gave him a jump rope, he could jump it right now. He wouldn't want to, but he would because of witty inventions. Sanctification, don't be scared by it. All it means is to consecrate something or make it holy, fit for God's use. In order for us to ever be worthy of being around God, in God's presence, used by God, bringing praise or bringing pleasure to God, we have to be changed. That's the word sanctification. All it means, you really want to get down to it, make someone holy. Consecrate someone. What does the word sanctuary mean? Is a sanctified place. Why is, why is a place where a church meets called the sanctuary and it is separated from the dining hall or the fellowship hall? Because the sanctuary is where you go meet God. It is the sanctified place. It is the holy place. What's a saint? A sanctified person. What's a sanctified person? A holy person. What's this book called? The scriptures, but I need a four letter word in front of it. The Holy Scriptures. Who's the Holy... Oh. What's the Spirit's full name in the Bible? Holy Spirit. Ghost. Holy Ghost. Sanctification. Don't ever be scared by that word. It's a wonderful word. There, the Bible uses economic terms, redemption. Ransom. It uses legal terms, justification. It uses family terms, or medi- mediation. Uh reconciliation. The Bible uses these different expressions to describe salvation so that we get all the facets of the diamond of salvation. And it uses religious terms. And one of the religious terms, which is not economic, nor is it family, nor is it financial or or, uh, or legal, is sanctification, which is a religious term to make something holy. When things were sanctified in the Old Testament, they were made holy, they were consecrated, they were dedicated to God. Okay, through sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God has an operation between the eternal phase and the legal phase combining the two of them together whereby the Holy Spirit consecrates us to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to die for us. He consecrates us to Christ and Christ to us in a phase that takes place before the legal phase is finished that the Bible describes in a number of places which we need to look at. Do you know this? That we were chosen in Christ Jesus before the world began that we should be made holy and without blame before Him in love. Does it say that? That's, that's what it's talking about. Being made holy and without blame by God's choice in Ephesians 1-4. Look at Jude, hold at 1 Peter, but look at Jude 1-1. This sanctification of the Spirit has to come before the obedience of Jesus Christ because of its position in the sentence in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. And then when you look in the pages of Scripture, lo and behold, there is a sanctification of making us holy in an eternal and legal sense by God the Holy Spirit designating us for the holiness of God by what Jesus Christ will secure for us. Jude 1.1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of G- James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father. Now we are really reaching back. God the Father sanctifies us and preserved in Jesus Christ. God has set us apart to be His holy children. We were elect to Christ, and through the sanctifying operation of the Holy Spirit, we are designated and made holy by God unto Christ's obedience for us that will be the legal fulfilling of that. Holding your hand at 1 Peter 1, look at 1 Corinthians 1. 1 Corinthians 1. If I don't preach as long as Newell, then I will feel very inferior when I have to look him in the eyes on Wednesday night. And I'm not running out of energy. And my legs aren't rubbery, because it's only my second time today. And it's only my fourth or fifth time in nine days. He did 20 in nine days. That is... That is cruel and unusual punishment. He loved every minute of it. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Watch this. But of him, 1 Corinthians 1, 30. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. When it says of him, who are we talking about? God. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. So how do we get in Christ Jesus? God puts us in Christ Jesus. Well, how does he do that? Well, he chose us in him, Ephesians 1, 4, and were elect in 1 Peter 1, 2. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us. Jesus is assigned these things on our behalf by God. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These are legal terms. This is Jesus fulfilling everything for us. He wisely pleased God. He clothes us in His righteousness. He sanctifies us and makes us holy. And He redeems us from the law of God. And how do we get there? God elected us there. Of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God... i got to slow down. I know you don't want me to slow down, but listen. Of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God... Do you see that God is doing something with us? And God is doing something with Christ. Of Him... Of whom... But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus. That's God putting us in Christ, who of God is made unto us. God assigning Jesus Christ to be those four things for us. Do you see it working in both directions? We are put in Christ for those four things. Jesus Christ is assigned for those four things to us. This is through sanctification of the Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, makes us holy by consecrating us and dedicating us, sanctifying us, to what Jesus Christ will do for us and assigning Jesus Christ to do it for us on the other hand as well. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and five verses there. The Bible says that the blood of Christ was carried into heaven, metaphorically, by what person of the Godhead who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God through sanctification of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit of God that assigns Christ to us, us to Christ, thereby making us holy because of the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is the sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that is the that is the focal point of sanctific, legal sanctification in the New Testament, which is what is mentioned in 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. Watch these verses, Hebrews 10. Do you know what verses 1 through 9 are all about in Hebrews 10? It's all about the sprinkling of blood. See in verse 4? The blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible that that could take away sin. This is about the sprinkling of blood. Watch God's will is mentioned in verse 9. I come to do thy will, O God. The will of God. Verse 10. By the which will. Which will is under consideration? The will of God. By the which will. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We are sanctified in a legal way by Jesus Christ dying for us and shedding his blood. Verse 11. And every priest... Standeth daily ministering. These these are the Old Testament priests. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Sanctification comes in front of the perfection. Because we've been sanctified by the Holy Ghost and Jesus died for us. And the sanctification of 1 Peter 1-2 is God the Holy Spirit being involved in the transaction by which we are assigned to Christ and Christ assigned to us for us to be holy in the presence of God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit being assigned and consecrated and dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ and Him to us And then it goes on to say, what do we need from Christ in order to be fully sanctified in the eyes of the God that elected us? His obedience and His death. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. Brethren, more could be said, but I am out of time, and I believe that your minds are running out as well. It will be in an outline. I thank God for an additional phase and further light on sanctification. I have taught this to you before in less than perfect terms. And it is in a sermon series entitled Sanctification where I took this big word, reduced it down to make us holy, and showed it in its five phases. And if you go back and look at that phase one eternal, phase two legal, you will see what I'm teaching you now, but I'm trying to make it simpler for you inside this text of 1 Peter 1-2. That God the Holy Spirit has and involvement in the transaction in the Godhead by which we are made holy. He carried the blood of Christ to heaven. He assigned us to Christ because of God's election of us out of the human race. He has consecrated us to be God's children by this transaction. And it says in 1 Peter 1-2, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. What did God choose us to? The obedience of Jesus Christ. The sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Was there, inter, was there any intermediary operation? Yes. The Holy Spirit of God was involved in this great transaction of us being assigned to Christ and Christ being assigned to us. And so we have our salvation the first two phases wrapped up in 1 Peter 1-2. Elect is the eternal phase. The obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ is the legal phase and in between that is the Holy Spirit which we can find in places like 1 Corinthians one thirty, Jude one, 1 Hebrews 10, 10-14, 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, through 11, Hebrews 13-12 and other places teach this sanctifying, consecrating, dedicating operation of God the Holy Spirit assigning us to Christ and Christ to us. When we look at this text... And I am surprised by the number of men that have gone before us that are confused by it. When it says obedience, they make it our obedience. When it says sprinkling of the blood, they make it baptism. Or they make it our faith that brings the blood of Christ and applies it to us because they believe in legal justification by faith. Uh Uh-uh. None of that is here. There is no way that you can put our obedience in front of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ These are two things that Jesus Christ did and we were elected to them and we know where to turn the Bible to find out about this. This obedience of Jesus Christ is found in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, even so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Jesus Christ is the only one that obeys for eternal life, but how was his work applied to us? Because God elected us and the Spirit consecrated us by assigning us to Christ and Christ to us. Sprinkling of the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. The blood of Christ was carried into heaven metaphorically, representatively, by the spirit of God. It's found in Hebrews 9, 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. There's a transaction that took place this world doesn't have any concept about. It is the most fabulous transaction when Jesus Christ ascended up into heaven and presented himself as the lamb slain. Remember, it was a white lamb covered with red blood in the presence of Almighty God, and God let him take the book of the everlasting covenant out of his hand. That transaction is stupendous in its implications. That transaction is unknown by the world. It is part of the mystery of godliness, and you should delight in what took place in Revelation chapter 5, and it's being summarized in one verse, in 1 Peter 1, 2, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews nine twelve neither by the blood of goats and calves but by His own blood. He entered in once into the holy place having obtained eternal redemption for us. As soon as He walked in there and took the book of the covenant out of their hands, worthy is the Lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God. I need the words that come next by His blood. Elect. I'm sorry that I don't know how to preach. And I mean, I mean that in fuller sense than I can ever explain to you. But 1 Peter 1, 2 is a verse that should light you up and cause you to thank God and to go home this day and to bless God that there's a transaction that took place in this universe that is incomprehensible to our pitiful little minds. It's recorded in the pages of Scripture. Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. God chose us according to His determinant counsel and everlasting love, for the Holy Spirit to assign us to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ to us, that his obedience and the sprinkling of his blood would be on our behalf to seal up our salvation, eternal and legal phases, period. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. If God's done all that for us, everything else is going to follow behind. Trust him for that. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Romans eight thirty two? How are we saved? God chose us because he loved us, because he had set his love on us. The Holy Spirit assigned Christ to us, us to Christ. Jesus went and died an obedient death and his blood was sprinkled on our behalf and we shall have everlasting life. Later in this chapter, he will bring up the vital phase of salvation in verse twenty three being born again by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. <clears throat> and your Bible hasn't started living nor abiding yet. But there is a word of God, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the basis, the source, and the power, and the execution of our regeneration. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word and may you, this week, take some time to sit down with this epistle and look at these verses and delight yourself in some of these verses. Delight yourself in some of the phraseology. Delight yourself in some of the individual words. And may God bless you with His Word. And I close with what I began with this morning, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. If you will read and trust this book as God's Word to you, it will effectually work in you. It will effectively work in you. It will mightily work in you. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word.